Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to a new edition of Collider Ladies Night. When I get to talk to a damn legend, Gina Davis is on the show. Gina, I never thought that I would ever be able to give that introduction. You are just so, seriously, you're so instrumental to like me growing up as, as a sports lover in particular for a, league, for a league of their own and also just a movie lover in general. I was mighty obsessed with Beetlejuice, The Fly, I could go on and on. So it really is a great honor to have you here. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right. So you have not been warned, but the first thing we do on Collider Ladies Night is we play with this dice tower behind me. I've got a list of eight random questions here. You get three rolls on the tower, and whatever you land on, that's where we start at least. Okay. All right. So your first roll up. Kicking this off with a number six, which is wrap gift. What is the best wrap gift you've ever received? Um, oh, I don't know, but I'll tell you one I gave. Oh, I love hearing that instead. Right. So for Beetlejuice, I didn't know what to get everybody. And so I I drew um, an illustration of a, a bug being squished. You know those uh, lemon juicer things? Of a bug being squished on a juicer, a green juice coming out. And, uh, and so it was a picture for lemonade or something. And it said Beetlejuice. And then it had the image of squeezing beetles. Uh, so I gave everybody that. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, of personal and more sentimental gifts rather than things. So I really dig that idea. Right. Right. All right. Roll number two for you now. We're going with a number eight. This is a fun one. If you could compete on the game show of your choice, what show would you pick and could you actually win it? Uh, I don't want to say The Apprentice. <laughs> Just because, uh, but I used to like. I like the idea of having to, you know, learn a whole new thing. Um, well, let me see. Could I win it? Uh, I'm trying to think what what our current 
um, what are current game shows? I know I don't want to, I'll tell you what I don't want to go on is Jeopardy because people think I'm really smart and I'm not going to go on there and show the holes in my knowledge. You know, I mean, there's whole categories that I know nothing about. Uh, but, um, think uh well there was an old uh it was an old show called password and you could give a one word clue to make them guess another word and and uh i, I was very good at that i was very very good at that i i love to hear it jeopardy's hard because there's so many like specific fields of knowledge within general knowledge that one category is going to screw you over at least oh. Absolutely. Yeah. If it's ever film or television related, that's when I'm really good at Jeopardy, but everything else, forget about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, 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 trivia, uh, Trivial Pursuit was always like the film and TV category for me. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that one as well. All right. You got one more roll on the tower left. We are wrapping this up with a number one. Okay. This is a big one. This one we call Never Again. What is something you did for a role that now makes you say, I'm really glad that I tried that once, but I'd rather not do that again? Well, uh, I don't, I don't, I've done a, some water stunts in some movies that I've done. I don't want to do water stunts anymore. Um, I was in a, a tank in Malta where we're supposed to be a, a shipwreck and it, and it made giant waves and stuff. And I was like, I'm going to actually drown instead of just pretending. Um, uh, I was on a torture wheel with a water wheel where I kept going under the water. I had to get into an ice hole in a real lake uh, that they cut a hole in the ice. And I had to get under the water and pop up out of it. I, I just, I don't want any more water stunts. I think that is, that's very, very fair. I can understand that. Yeah. All right. It is time to get into the meat of it now. Every single episode of Ladies Night always starts here. What is the movie, the performance, the personal experience, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I absolutely have to be an actor and nothing else? Oh, you know, I don't know, because I announced to my parents when I was three that I was going to be an actor. And I, I don't remember doing that, but they said I did. But I don't remember what I saw. What could I have seen? What movie could I have seen at three years old? I think we only went to Disney cartoon movies. So so I don't know what it was, but that was it. And I never, never changed. In that case, I'll flip it around a little. So you decide you want to be an actor and pursue it as a career. Is there any particular set that you were on or experience that you had that made you first say to yourself, it's not just that I want to do this, but I feel that I'm really good in it. And you had confidence in yourself. Well, I have to say it was my first movie, which was Tootsie, uh, because I'd only studied, you know, acting and everything up until then. And, uh, and, it was even my first audition and I got cast in that movie. And I was a little terrified before I, before I did it that, uh, you know, am I going to be like confused on the set or not know what to do or whatever. And, and it was very comfortable and easy from the beginning. And I thought, all right, that was right all along. I want to do this. Here's a question I love asking all the time. Looking back at your experience on the set of Tootsie, is there any seemingly silly question about the way that films were made that you were afraid to ask, but wish you had the nerve to ask? I didn't ask any questions. Like I could have asked anything. I was at my first movie. Nobody would have thought anything, but I was so like, 
shy and didn't want to be embarrassed that I asked nothing. And uh, I assumed that everybody came every day. And so I did. I arrived at 6.30 a.m. every day. And some days I shot and some days I didn't. But nobody ever said, you know, by the way, you don't have to come on the days you're not shooting. Uh, but I, I had a great time. So I can't say I, I wish I hadn't done that. But uh, but I don't know what people must have thought when I came every day. And also, I had no idea you weren't supposed to sit next to the director. And every day I would get my chair and just park it right next to Sidney Pollock and sit next to him all day long. But he, he liked it. He, he enjoyed it, he said. so. But I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. Honestly, these things that you didn't know sound to me like they probably made that one of the best learning experiences imaginable. I think it was. I think it was, yeah. So I'm always curious to hear about what it's like after someone's first huge hit film. So after the success of Tootsie, what was, I guess, your personal plan to maximize the momentum that you got from that movie? And then did that plan pan out? Did you wind up using that momentum to book the roles that you wanted after? Well, that is what happened. It wasn't my planning exactly, but... uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Dabney Coleman was was uh, in the movie, a brilliant, funny actor, and uh, he was getting ready to do a TV series and uh, and had me audition for that. And I got a part in that without having, a, you know, any other worries in between. Uh, so uh, so I got to move to L.A. with a job, uh, which was incredible. So it just all worked out great for me. That's the best way to do it if you have that luxury there. Early on in your career, I feel like it's always so valuable to have, you know, that person in your corner where when something doesn't quite work out, you can lean on them and they see that special something in you that keeps you focused. Did you have that person? And if so, who was it? It was my first agent, David Eidenberg, uh, who I, I, I had to get an agent once I moved to Hollywood and, uh, and I interviewed with a few people that, that were recommended to me. And and every meeting was them telling me how lucky I would be to be with them. You know, you'd be so lucky we represent this one and that one, you'd be so lucky. And then when I met David Eidenberg, he said, we would be so lucky to have you. And I was like, well, I'm signing up with you. Uh, you know, and he turned out to be the most incredible, most incredible person ever. Yeah. That makes me so happy to hear. I feel like we don't often talk about the actor-agent relationship and not nearly enough given how important that connection is and how much hard work they have to put in as well. So what do you value in an actor-agent relationship? Well, I mean, it was clear that he really believed in me and uh, um, worked very, very, very hard for me. And and just... uh, you know, made me feel confident in, in myself and my own choices and, and all of that. And, uh, and I got cast in Thelma and Louise, I'm sure, ultimately because of him, because uh, when I heard about it and wanted to be in it, it had already been cast. It was all over. And, uh, but he kept calling Ridley Scott's office saying, if anything changes, if anything changes, Gina's still interested for a year. And it went through like three sets of Thelma and Louise and then finally, Ridley decided, I'm going to direct it myself. 
And because of all those phone calls, he said, yes, yes, I will meet with Gina. I understand she's been very persistent. And so then I finally did get cast. I can't imagine that movie any other way. I wasn't even deliberately watching it to prepare for this interview, but every single time it's on TV, which is fairly often, the second you randomly scroll to there's no turning it off. You watch that movie till the end every single time. Right, right. Before we get to that huge winner for you, I always like covering bumps in the road on this show and how we've overcome them. And often I'll focus on an audition that didn't pan out. And one of the ones that I found for you was Terminator. So... Do you remember anything about the Terminator audition process and then what you took from an audition process where you don't book the role, where there's still still something valuable about something not panning out the way you might have hoped? Well, I'll tell you, here's my memory of Terminator. I didn't audition for it. I was never considered for it. It's on the internet as, as there's a list of movies on, uh, on IMDb. It's not the site itself, but it's a comment from a, you know, just a person uh, that lists all these movies that I was never considered for and that I either turned down or wasn't hired for. And uh, it's been the bane of my existence because people think, you turned down that? You didn't do that? Yeah. So. It does make sense, though. Like, Linda Hamilton is phenomenal, but in another version of Terminator... I could see you making the absolute most of that role. I, I genuinely mean it. So yeah. in, in that case, do you remember something you auditioned for? You thought you were going to get it. It didn't pan out. Maybe you were bummed, but ultimately you found something good in the experience. Nothing's coming to mind. Nothing's coming to mind. I mean, movies have happened that I never heard of. And I was like, why didn't I ever hear it? You know what I mean? But, before it came out, I never heard of it. Then it was cast and the movie was coming around. What? Like, I remember Aaron Brockovich was one where I was like, oh, if only. But, you know, a lot of times people have, it was Julia Roberts who played the part. A lot of times people have the per, the person in mind that they want to do that part. And so n- nobody else ever sees it. You know, they don't comb the comb Hollywood to find out who would be good. I don't know if uh, if you have much influence on this part of the project, but you know, for someone else out there who's maybe just starting out and they hear about a role that really speaks to them and they really want it, is there anything they can do to put themselves in the running for something like that? Well, it's tough, you know, because if it's an important part, you really have to have an agent who's going to put you out for it. You could ask, you could say, "I heard about this," and ask your agent to put you up for it, but but it, you know, it's very hard to break in is the thing. Uh, and usually you have to break in with a small part or, or parts. And it's very hard if you don't have an agent, but it's very hard to get an agent because you have to have worked. So it's a horrible, horrible thing. But, um, but if you're just starting out, uh, it's really good if you can create your own material. I mean, there's YouTube for no money. You can create some of your own content and people, see that stuff. And, and, you know, that can be a way a lot of people have become famous that way. It's one of my absolute favorite things about social media too. I have obviously recently become addicted to TikTok and whether it's, you know, seeing, seeing a, 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 an aspiring Broadway star sharing their craft on TikTok or hearing a band for the first time that I wouldn't have found otherwise. It really has introduced me to so many artists that I never would have connected with without the platform. Right, right. It's, I'm just, it shows how old I am to bring up. 
uh, YouTube instead of TikTok. <laughs> this interview is going to exist on YouTube. I'm glad you're still saying YouTube. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> all right. So I want to touch on The Fly because I just actually had the opportunity to talk to David Cronenberg about his new movie, Crimes of the Future. And right. he's always been one of my favorite filmmakers because I know any single time I go and I see one of his movies, I'm going to get something that feels truly one of a kind and that takes bold swings. But during our interview, he did say to me that many actors on his sets have come up to him and said, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Did you ever have that feeling on the fly? And if so, what did he say to you to make you trust your instincts? No, I didn't have that happen on the fly. Um, I got cast because Jeff Goldblum was already cast and we had recently started uh, Become an Item and, uh, and he recommended me for the part of the, of, of the, the female part. And, and they were like, Oh, but what if you guys break up? That would be, that would be a bad idea. And then I auditioned and they said, Oh, okay. So, um, so the thing about that was, which has never happened before since, but I was working, I was acting with my actual real life partner. And so we just, we lived and breathed that movie for, uh, for as long as, as, uh, ever since we got cast. And so it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience and, and David Cronenberg is so collaborative and supportive and everything. It was just a fabulous experience. He's the coolest. He is one of those idols that was a real treat to meet because he just, he gave me one of like the kindest and most thoughtful interviews and his perspective on how we consume stories now is just, it's something that I wish more out there would embrace more willingly. Right. That's fantastic. Uh, let's get into Thelma and Louise now. So I've, I've read a little bit about how you view Thelma and Louise as uh, one of your biggest career game changers. So it was making me wonder, how does that kind of career game changer compare to winning an Oscar? Well, well, uh, winning an Oscar, the biggest thing about it, I didn't know how I would react if I ever did, but the biggest thing about it was I felt like, Oh, I got that out of the way. Like, I don't have to spend any more time. I was, you know, I was only in the business for like eight years. And I thought, oh, okay, well now I never have to worry about that. <laughs> so that's been great. Um, and, uh, but, but Thelma Louise uh, really changed my, transformed my life because uh, of the reaction that the movie got. Uh I, I was used to people sometimes recognizing me uh, on the street or in a supermarket or whatever and say, hey, Beetlejuice, or, hey, the fly or something. And uh, and I was used to that. But after Thub and Louise came out, it was completely different. If somebody recognized me from that movie, they wanted to talk to me about their experience watching it. This is who I saw it with. This is how many times I saw it. You know, my friend and I acted out your trip. It was Really? Which, which part of it exactly did you act out? But, uh, but it made me realize how few opportunities we give women to come out of a movie feeling inspired and, you know, jazzed about the female characters. And I thought, well, what a shame, you know, because men get to come out of almost every movie having related, you know, identified with, with the, one of the male characters, but women almost never. So I thought I'm going to really think about that now when I make choices 
I'm going to think about what are the women in the audience going to think about my character? I love that answer. That's so incredibly beautiful. Thelma and Louise was a big one. That exact effect is what A League of Their Own had on me. I was a very big athlete growing up, and there was something about having watched that movie on repeat at that age that, you know, gave me the confidence that, yeah, I can embrace athletics all I want. And it didn't matter if it was a sport that was traditionally only considered for men. If I wanted to play it, I could. Oh, that's a great story. I love that. (laughs) I mean it. So another thing that I absolutely love talking about is when an experienced actor has a really big influence on someone who's first starting out. And you made such a big impression on Brad Pitt working on Thelma and Louise that when he won an Oscar in 2020, he mentioned you in his acceptance speech. So what led to that? When you were working on Thelma and Louise, what were you thinking about in terms of how you could influence newer talent stepping into the industry? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. But uh, but yeah, I was I was so blown away that he that he said that. Um, uh, I mean, I you know, I auditioned with I read with all the people auditioning for that role and. Uh, I had to say he really stuck out, you know, I mean, you know, there were some incredible people auditioning, but, um, but, you know, I would have chosen him too, but Ridley, Ridley did, but, uh, but he was just great. I don't know. I, I imagine I was supportive or something. <laughs> it's very important. It's a tough business. I feel like if you have the wrong experience at that point in your career, it could completely change the trajectory of everything for you. So it's important that there's folks like you out there. Right. So obviously I have to squeeze in one A League of Their Own question right now, given how obsessed I am with that movie. I feel like I could come up with a million. So more broadly, is there any particular day on set that you would call the most memorable day of filming, where when someone says to you A League of Their Own, you immediately go back to that particular day of filming and I don't know, like sounds cheesy, but gives you all the warm and fuzzy feelings. You know, uh, in a way we had that every day because, the way Penny wanted to, Penny Marshall wanted to shoot it was that we would all, like I assumed for for Tootsie, we would all be there every day, all day, and get dressed in the morning, either in a clean uniform or a dirty uniform, depending if we'd played or not yet, and uh, and hang out in the dugout together, and uh, and it was very fun and very bonding, you know, to uh, to just have a bunch of women all hanging out together and, and, and playing sports and everything. It was fantastic. I love it. That radiates off screen in that movie. Let's hit another little bump in the road. So after Cutthroat Island, I know you took two years off and I know a hiatus isn't likely in the plans or something that you wanted at the time, but looking back, what were some of the big takeaways from that period of reflection that you're glad you wound up having in the end? Well, you know, I averaged until I was like 40 or so, I averaged only one movie a year. So, and that was because I was so fussy about, you know, once you're in some really good movies, you know, everything doesn't look as good anymore. So, um, uh, so I would wait till something good came along. And uh, so I was always very good at downtime. I've always been really good at amusing myself in between. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not one of those people that if I'm not working, I'm, I'm nothing. So uh, so I always had a lot of hobbies and stuff to keep me entertained. 
That's that's the way to do it. Hobbies like archery. I'm still just like endlessly impressed by the idea that someone could see something that they want to try and pick it up and do it and do it to the extent that you did. <laughs> I take everything too far. Whatever I do, I would take it much too far. What? That's kind of exciting, though. I feel like deep passion like that is one of the most uh, one of the most inspiring qualities to have. Do you still practice at all? Uh, not so much. I don't. I'm not. I don't compete anymore. I can still do it, but uh, but not so much anymore. That's still very cool. More broadly, here with TV. So it does seem like you've leaned into TV more so than ever. In I guess I would say recent years, in particular. So is there anything in particular that is pulling you to that specific format of storytelling? Maybe something. Uh, about the creative process of making a show that you can't quite get from a film. Well, yeah. Uh, for one thing, you get to play a character longer, and I, you know, every movie I have done, I wish there would be a sequel because I don't want to stop being that character. You know, you fall in love with them. Uh, but uh, so TV can, unless you get canceled, can last uh, longer, and uh, so you have more time to go in depth with the character. But on the other hand. TV shoots much quicker than movies. Movies, you might shoot one or two pages a day, and TV, you're shooting like eight pages. So it's a whole different animal. But um, I love so many streaming shows, you know. I just, and then I binge watch and it ruins my life. But uh, <laughs> you know how that is. Uh, but oh, very much. I love, you know, and, um, and there's so many great parts for women, Even, you know, women over 40 and over 50. So, um, I'm very uh, optimistic about, you know, television. It's it's really um, breaking barriers that that haven't yet been broken in film. I'm gonna cheat at my little dice game, and I'm gonna bring back one question: What is the most recent TV show that you've binge watched? Uh, oh, I, I well, I shouldn't say. Uh, I'll say I'll say Ozark, except it was really uh, Love Is Blind. <laughs> Love is Blind is a very, very good reality show. I can't get enough of that. No, I know. I'm so embarrassed to say, but I watch all of it. I would not be embarrassed by that one bit. There are so many people out there who are full-blown obsessed with those shows. And, and Netflix is putting out quite a few really solid romance reality shows they right now. They really are. And I also like true crime shows, you know, either documentaries or that are acted out. You know, I like all that stuff. Oh, there's a lot of those. I could give you a whole list of great true crime right now. Yeah, yeah. All right. So looking at all of the most recent sets that you've worked on, is there any particular one that gives you the most hope for the future of women in film and television? Just a shining example of an onset environment that's pushing everything in the right direction. Uh, I would have to say glow. Um I did uh, the third season of it, the whole season, and it was it was fantastic. I mean, you can imagine with all those women and you know women behind the camera as well in charge, and uh, it was just a fantastic experience. And they're so fun, and it's a great show. I didn't want to be biased, but I was hoping you would say glow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a canceled too soon show. There was so much more to explore in season four. My heart crumbled a little bit. No, me too. Well, we still have those three seasons to binge watch over and over and over again, and I have done so quite a bit. Uh-huh. All right. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about your institute on gender and media. So I was reading that after you first collected all of that research, you went and you took it to the studios. And from my limited perspective, 
There's a lot of very informative data out there, but it's not easy to get big companies to act on it. So when you brought that information to these big studios, what was the key to actually getting them to do something with it? Well, um, see, I had noticed the problem of, of there being too, uh, too few female characters in what's made for kids, including some preschool shows and, and the movies made for kids, you know, PG and things like that. And, uh, and I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe that in the 21st century, we would be showing kids that boys and girls are not equal. So I didn't intend to try to do something about it. But I, when I asked people in Hollywood about it, every single person said, no, that's not true anymore. That's all been fixed. And they would name a movie with like one female character as proof that there was gender equality in it. So I thought, I want to get the data because I'm pretty sure I'm right. And then I can go directly to the people making it. I don't I have to, you know, no middleman or anything, you know, because people know who I am. And I can go directly to them and very privately share it with them because I know that it's unconscious bias because otherwise they'd be saying, yeah, we know, but but they were all like, no, 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 it's, it's not true. So I was able to prove to them that it was true. And, and every network and studio and production company um, I shared it with was shocked. They were shocked that they were so few female characters. They had no idea. And so the data and, and realizing their own bias, like, did the trick, you know, I mean, they were instantly making changes. Um, and data won't do that with everything because for example, uh, everybody has known for decades how few female, uh, female directors there are. Nobody doesn't know how few there are. And that data, that information does nothing to make the numbers go up. But in my case, because it was unconscious bias for on screen, it, it worked to show the data. In that case, I mean, this is a big question, but what could be a step to take to tackle that conscious bias where it might prove effective even if it takes a long time to make happen? Well, that, it's a whole different animal because, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, Disney is doing a great job. Disney is really is hiring women for giant, giant budget movies and everything, and, and they're doing a great job. And, and a lot of people are doing better but um, but we have a long way to go. We're still in single digits as far as how many female directors there are every year. So um, I don't have the magic bullet for that. I don't know. I feel like I did ask you for like the secret, secret sauce, the question that's impossible to answer with a single sentence. I know, I know. I mean, that may be a case where you need people alerting the pub, you know, you have that it's more public facing my mine. I don't even have to educate the public. You know, I just do it myself. And, uh, but maybe that's one where somebody makes a list of this is how many directors they had that were female every year, you know, whatever. And people probably do that, but, um, that might be the approach you have to take. Well, you are taking steps to doing that right now because Bentonville is something that highlights a lot of female filmmakers out there. Before we get into the specifics for 2022, I did want to know, how exactly does one start a film festival? How did that idea just come to your head one day? And then when was the first step you, you took to make it a reality? Well, actually, it was Walmart's idea. Um, 
that and that's why we uh, have our festival in Bentonville, Arkansas, because that's there. I just had a friend give me a little Bentonville 101, and I'm like, oh, this is all making a lot of yeah. sense now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an adorable town. I'm here right now, and uh, it's it's a fantastic town. I'm so supportive of the festival. Um, but that's how that all happened. But of course, I was uh, thrilled to to be a part of it. So for those out there who are not familiar with what the festival is, can you tell them a little bit about what makes it stand out? Because a lot of our viewers are very familiar with, you know, like Sundance, TIFF, South Bike, go on and on. Why should Bentonville be on their radar just as much as some of those other festivals? Right. Well, uh, we are very mission driven and our mission is <clears throat> to champion storytelling, uh, both in front of and behind the camera, that's very diverse that, uh, you know, I mean, it's not controversial to say it shouldn't be that you want the population in front of and behind the camera to reflect the population, uh, you know, 50% women, 40% people of color, you know, all that 20% people with disabilities. And so, um, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's the goal. So we, we, we actually over highlight all these underrepresented groups, but it's just to show how, what fabulous movies you can make, how impactful they are, how you uh, totally relate to these stories that you, you know, that uh, are not your comfort zone. And uh, uh, and we've had tremendous uh, success with it. It's our eight, eighth year this year. So. I've been hearing about this festival for so, so long. And I, I keep hearing about how wonderful the environment and the vibe is there and the, at, the atmosphere. And it's always made me want to go. And this is finally the year. I am going to be there for a little you bit. Are? I'm so excited. Am I going to see you? Yes, yes. I cannot wait. So just to highlight 2022 for the festival a little bit here, what is something new you were able to accomplish for this iteration of the festival that's the first time and you are especially proud of? For the first time. Well, mm, I'm not sure, although uh, we have 70 wonderful films in competition. And in order to be in competition, you have to meet our criteria, basically. And um, that involves having uh, a woman, uh, 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 someone from an underrepresented segment of society, uh, of our culture, either as the director, as the writer, as the producer, as the star. You have uh, a gender-balanced uh, crew. You have uh, a gender-balanced or, or a, a very, very diverse uh, cast. You know, that, so there's all this, I think about seven points, and you have to have a certain number of them to be able to qualify uh, to be in the festival. And then once you're in it, they're all equal, you know. But, uh, uh, but it's very exciting how more and more films are qualifying. I mean, my dream from the beginning was that people will say, hey, that Benville Film Festival is really cool. I bet we should get in it if we hired a female director or, you know, something like that. And, uh, and I don't know, I kind of think maybe that's happening now because we got so many great submissions. I really would believe you're having that influence on the industry with how much I've heard more and more about the festival with every single different iteration. Yeah. All right, so we always play a second game on Ladies' Night. The game I'm going to give you today is Would You Rather, and it's all filmmaking Would You Rather. So, okay. so some of them get into the process. Some of them are a little silly. I'll give you my favorite silly one to start here. Would you rather have to fake sneeze or fake vomit in a scene? Oh, sneeze. Sneeze anytime. Yeah. 
So the fake vomit is gross, but I put the fake sneeze in there because it feels like it's very difficult to do a convincing fake sneeze. Yes. Yes. It might be impossible to make it absolutely authentic, but you can put the sound in. Well, that's true. You know, you can put the sound of a sneeze in. You were the first person to bring that, bring that up and use that little cheat there. I like it. <laughs> you know what they use for fake vomit sometimes? Oh, it, yes. I've heard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm someone with a deep fear of, of vomiting, so I would never be able to choose that one for that reason alone. Yeah. Somewhat similar to that one, because I always think that it might be really difficult to do a convincing, you know, fake belly laugh. Would you rather have to fake laugh in a scene or fake cry in a scene? Well, I would, I would rather have to cry in a scene um, because you can make, you can make that happen. You know, think about your dead cat or something, but, uh, uh, but fake laughing is, is hard because even if you think of something that would make you laugh the first couple of times, it wears out and everything. It's, it's very, very tough. Yeah. All right. Here's one that gets into process a little more. Would you rather work opposite someone who uses method acting techniques or someone who likes to improvise all the time? Uh, well, that's interesting. Um, I am not a big improviser. I don't, I don't, I just can't do it that good. I like to say the lines, but if somebody's ad-libbing opposite me, it doesn't throw, throw me, you know, if they want to make it do whatever they want. Um, so, I would say I'm equally I'm equally good with either one, as long as I don't have to ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer there. All right, here here's a little more of a playful one again. Would you rather play the killer in a horror movie or get a really gnarly death scene? Oh, the killer, the killer by a thousand percent. Can you please? Is there some sort of slasher movie that can cast you as their killer? <laughs> well, not that many have had a female slasher, have they? But I did play an assassin in one movie, and uh, I, I enjoyed that very much. <laughs> All right. How about, I'll squeeze in two more here. Would you rather work on a film where you only get one take per scene and you have to nail it in one take, or where you have to do 100 takes every single scene? For me, 100 takes. Have you ever worked with a director who, who does something like that, where they like to get a ton of takes and a ton of variation? The most, the director I worked with who, who liked to do the most takes was Penny Marshall, but there was never anything like a hundred, uh, but, uh, but to, to trust that I'm going to nail it in one, I kind of, I kind of warm up to th things. I always said, let me go second because I get rolling slowly. So I'd, I'd rather do more takes than just one. And it's completely opposite for a lot of people, but. It's true. I'm going to wrap with this one here. Would you rather sign on for a new film without getting to read the script in advance or without knowing who you're going to work with? Uh, I got to read the script. <laughs> I just, yeah, yeah. I don't care about anything else except I got to read the script. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Here's the end of Ladies' Night. Now, I actually haven't gotten to these two questions in a little while. I'm very glad that I get the opportunity to do it with you in particular. But when the show first started, we always ended with these. The first one is, can you name one person in this industry who you think is changing it for the better? Oh, well, I could name a million, but... Uh, I had a feeling you can right, name a million. Right, but uh, uh, I, I think Reese Witherspoon is a terrific 
powerhouse, you know, doing so much for women. And, you know, if the parts aren't coming her way, she creates them for herself, you know, and uh, I, I think she's an incredible force for, for women. Excellent choice right there. Now, this next one's a deep one. You can take it in a lighter direction if you prefer. What is the biggest fear you've had that you've actually managed to overcome? Uh, fear of heights. Uh, because, you know, I'm the kind of person if they say, we want you to do it yourself, I'm like, okay, yes, I can. Even though I might be terrified and stuff. And so um, on Cutthroat Island, we had to do a scene where they they wanted us to hang off a 300-foot cliff and we're holding onto a rope, you know, and, and whatever. And they were like, should we have the stunt person? No, uh, no, I can do it. <laughs> I did, but I was terrified. I was literally, uh, and uh, fortunately, I had to be afraid in the scene. <laughs> Not, you know, thank God I didn't have to be like, well, this is a piece of cake. Uh, because it was terrifying. It was literally hanging over a 300 foot drop. And, uh, but I, but I did it. But you did it. I love to hear it. All right. We got to wind this down. So I'm going to thank you for your time today and huge congratulations on everything you've accomplished, whether it's on screen or it's behind the scenes, influencing this industry for the better. We need forces like you here. And I'm so deeply grateful we have you. Great. Thank you, Perry. So much fun to talk to you. 